I remember vividly, it was uh, end of freshman year of college. I was dropping Lindsay off at her dorm, Gardner dorm. We were in my 92 Azuzu Trooper standard and pulled up to the dorm there for her to get out. And we look at each other and I just don't want her to get out of the car. You know what I'm talking about, guys? And we look at her and we say for the first time, I love you, right? And it was magical. And I'll tell you, she got out of the car. I didn't want her to get out of the car. She got out and she went into her dorm. And I have no memory of how I got from her dorm to my dorm. Like, I do not remember that at all. If you've ever seen the cartoons when guys, when their feet are just kind of flying through the air and their feet aren't touching the ground, I'm pretty sure that's how it was. I have no memory of that. I remember going back to my room and telling my roommate, been my best friend since I was three. And I was like, I'm in love. I'm in love. It was just amazing. And that feeling just kind of washed over me for days and days. And then I remember the moment that that feeling developed in me or produced in me this responsibility, this sense of purpose. Like from now on, because I love this woman, I'm going to spend my life pursuing and protecting and honoring and caring for her. Okay. And I tell you that story to win me points with my wife. And also I tell you that story. Because I think it's reflective of how the truth works on us. That the first thing the truth does is that it does something to us. And then, and only after it's done something to us, can it do something with us. Does that make sense? So first the truth does something to us, and then it does something with us. And I want to think about that with you as it relates to God's mission to the nations today, because this is a really fair question. Why do we even do missions? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, I've been asked before, why are we sending all this money and resources overseas when Memphis has all kinds of problems right here? I mean, aren't there a whole bunch of people right here that need to be saved? So why would we send so much over there when we got all these issues right here? Has anybody ever thought that before? Why? Missions, or let me put it to you like this. Let me use a metaphor. Suppose there were two great ships, ocean liners, that are both sinking in the middle of the ocean at the same time, separated by a couple miles. And the only rescue boat in the region gets called. And so they rush to the closest ship and they start plucking people out of the water, saving them. They're trying to stay afloat. So they start plucking these people out before they drown. At what point should that rescue ship leave that close ship and travel to the distant ship to rescue those people who are also struggling to stay afloat? Is it appropriate for that ship to ever leave when there are still people struggling in the water all around them to go to that other ship where they know there are other people struggling? Should they ever go? And why should they? Think about that. And maybe that metaphor breaks down a little bit because today when you give, I mean, a huge portion of what you give goes to bless Memphis, goes to bless work in the continental United States. So a huge portion of it is going to save souls who are struggling right here, but a big portion also goes overseas. And when it crosses borders, we we call that missions to the nations. It's a really fair question to say, why should we send it over there? I think the answer has something to do with that truth. The truth does something to you, and once you know it, it's going to do something with you. Let me see if I can explain that today. All right, come with me to Acts chapter 10. 
If you're our guest today, we've been in a series in Acts. I'm going to set up this story. You, you won't need to know. I'll set it up for you. And I'm going to focus in on one phrase from this story that I hope you remember today. And I hope it inspires you today as you think about giving. So Paul, the Apostle Paul, maybe you've heard that name before. He's chosen by the Lord Jesus Christ to be his instrument. So there's a, um, a, a dimension of sound related to him. To be his instrument or his tool to take the gospel to the nations, to all people. So not just Jews, all people. That's Paul in Acts chapter 9. But before Paul does that, we get Acts chapter 10, when this guy named Peter paves the way for Paul. So Peter, he's a good Jew, and as a good Jew, there are people who are not Jews, and he puts those people in a box, and he never messes with that box. That box is off limits. Jews are okay. You're not a Jew. You're in this box, and that is off limits. That's what we would call the nations or Gentiles. Okay, so he believes this so strongly that one day he's on the roof of this house, and he has a dream, and in the dream, God comes to him. The Lord Jesus comes to him. And he shows him this vision of animals that Gentiles, so those in the box, that they would eat, but that as a good Jew, he would never eat. And here's Jesus say to him, get up, Peter, kill and eat these animals. And this is how confident Peter is that he's right and he knows what's true. He turns around to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I don't think you know what you're talking about. There is no way I'm going to eat those. But the vision ends and he's kind of thinking about this vision and then these Gentile guys, so guys from the box, come and they show up at the house and they're like, Peter, come with us and go visit this guy Cornelius, a Gentile. And the spirit tells Peter, yeah, you should go. So he goes. And the first thing that he says to Cornelius, this Gentile, when he gets there, this is how reticent or hesitant he is to be there. He walks in the door and he's like, hey, I just want everybody here to know it's against the law for me to be in this room. So talk fast. Why am I here? And Cornelius begins to tell him what the Holy Spirit has been doing in his life, how God the Father has been calling him and working through him. And Peter sees that. He sees this confirmation that this is God's will, that the gospel would leave one people, cross a border, and go to the nations. And it's the first time he's ever realized this. And look what he says. He says this, I now realize how true, how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation those who fear him and do what's right. I now realize how true it is. Okay, we're going to throw something up on the screen. You've seen this the last couple of weeks if you've been around here. It's called the person pyramid. Does anybody remember this? Give me a nod of the head if you remember me talking about this. Does anybody besides my mom remember anything I say on Sunday mornings? Okay, can I get a nod? Yes, all right, couple. My mom texted me because she was watching online and she's like, I do remember you talking about that. Okay, mom never forgets. It's called the person pyramid. And basically what this, this proves to us or shows us or reminds us of is that our actions, what we do every day, are based on our sense of purpose what I'm supposed to do, who I am, what I'm supposed to do with my day. And that our sense of purpose actually comes from a deeper, more concrete foundational sense of meaning. So this is the meaning of life on which my purpose of life is based, from which I decide what I'm going to do each day. That's the 
person pyramid. So at the bottom of that level of meaning, you could substitute that word there, meaning for truth, what is most true. So Peter realizes something at which level? The level of meaning. What's true? What he realizes is, and now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism. I want you to think with me about how radical this must have been for him to hear. Peter is a Jew. As a Jew, he believes he's one of God's favorites because he's part of the group that God chose, not everybody else, them. Among the Jews, he's part of the 12 that the Lord Jesus chose to follow him every single day. Among the 12, he's one of the three that's in the inner circle with Jesus that gets to see special things and hear special things from Jesus that the other 12 don't get to see and hear. And among the three, he's the one that Jesus looks at and says, you're Peter and on this rock, I'm gonna build my whole church. If ever in the history of Christianity, there has been somebody who could say with confidence that God does have favorites and it's me, it's Peter. And in a moment, what he believes to be most true is upended. And he realizes that is not true. God does not show favorites. Can you imagine how humbling that was for Peter? Uh, I was in high school. My last couple of years of high school, I did journalism. I did a student newspaper. My threw out my arm, couldn't play baseball anymore. My life was over. So I joined the newspaper. And actually, that ended up being really life-giving and great for me. And I had a newspaper instructor, our teacher, Miss Carol. And she was amazing. She was like a mother to me. And I graduated high school. I was the editor-in-chief of the paper. We won awards. We did great. I graduated high school believing I was, confident of this, believing I was the best student she ever had and was absolutely her favorite. Okay. And I still think this about myself. Like I get up here to preach, I say a prayer to God, and then I get up there and I just remind myself, Eric, you're their favorite preacher. Okay. I graduated high school absolutely convinced I was her favorite. Well, she wrote a book a few years after I graduated. And the book is just funny stories and memories of all the students she taught over 20, 30 years in high school journalism. And I had looked at that book maybe 15 years ago and just put it on the shelf and kind of forgotten about it. But Noble was doing his homework the other day and I look behind him and that book catches my eye on the bookshelf. So I pull it down because I want to read the chapter about who? Me. And I just want to be reminded of how much she loved me and how I was the best ever. And you know what? Nowhere in that chapter does it say Eric was the best. And nowhere does it say Eric was my favorite. In fact, it's not that good of a chapter. And I took it to Lindsay and I said, Lindsay, look at this. This is a shame. And she says, what does that taste like? And I said, what are you talking about? She says, that slice of humble pie. <laughs> she said, all right, it is good. It is good and right for God to humble us. And part of the reason that God calls us to missions is so that we might be humbled and learn the truth that God does not have favorites. This truth, let me, let me just point out, it is a uniquely Christian belief. Now, you might say today, well, we talk about favoritism all the time. Nobody has favorites. Parents don't have favorites, all that and stuff. The idea of favoritism did not exist before Jesus Christ. The word barely shows up in ancient literature, but it shows up all over the New Testament because Christians figured out there is this thing called plain favorites and God doesn't do it. So that should change everything that we do. 
So look at this if you're a note taker. Romans 2, 9 through 11. It talks about suffering and why we suffer, and it says God doesn't show favoritism. Uh, Galatians 2, 6, it talks about our enemies, and it explains it. Well, God doesn't show favoritism. How we treat people who work for us. This is in Ephesians 6. It says we should treat them well because, you know, God doesn't show favoritism. In um, James 2.1, it says if you're trying to decide how to treat a rich person and a poor person, you should treat them both the same because, you know, our Lord Jesus Christ doesn't show favoritism. And this is kind of an example. I mean, it shows you that this truth that Peter learns only by crossing borders and going to the nations comes back around, humbles him, humbles the whole church and begins to change everything we do. So the truth does something to us and then it starts to do something with us. You see that? The Lord needs us humble if he's gonna use us. Uh, Do you remember the name Joseph? Does anybody remember this guy, Joseph from Genesis? Joseph is one of 12 brothers, and we read that he was his daddy's favorite, his daddy Israel or Jacob. Look at this. Now, Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. How many of you are willing to raise your hand and say, you are loved more than your brothers and sisters by your parents? Anybody willing to admit that? Yeah, some of you in here. Look at that. All right. Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had borne him in his old age. Look what he says. And he made an ornate robe for him. You remember this story. He gives him this robe that's multicolored. It's this real pretty robe. His brothers don't have one. And Joseph, the little punk that he is, wears that coat everywhere. It's hot outside. And he's like, oh, I think I probably need my coat. You know, if he had a mentor, his mentor would have told him, Joseph, that's the kind of coat you leave in your closet. But he's wearing it everywhere he goes just to rub it in that he's the favorite. And he keeps telling his brothers, guys, I'm having these dreams, strangest thing. You're all gonna bow down to me one day. Don't know what that's about, weird, right? Okay, so he knows he's the favorite. He keeps rubbing it in and he know what it takes for God to get Joseph to a point where he can use him. He gets sold into slavery. He ends up in Pharaoh's prison. It's going through all of that that God gets him to the point where he's ready to feed the whole world the bread of life. That's what happens as everyone comes to Egypt to be fed by Joseph. God needs us humble if he's going to use us. One of the reasons for missions, it is only when we give and send to the nations that we learn that truth. God doesn't show favorites. That's how. Now, let's be honest. Uh, I have favorites. You have favorites. I mean, in my prayer life, think about your own prayer life. How often do you pray for yourself, for your family, for the people you love, for your church? Is anybody else like that? Look at this in Psalm 67. Look how God infiltrates our selfish or self-serving prayers and turns them towards his will or his purpose. Look at this. May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine upon us so that your ways may be known on earth and your salvation among the nations. God's like, hey, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to bless you, but here's why. Not because you're my favorite, but because I'm going to use your blessings to bless everybody. That's what I'm going to do. Man, that makes us humble. That truth does something to us, doesn't it? Let me finish by this. Let me, let me remind you of a conversation Jesus has, because not only does that tree do something to us, it does something with us. Jesus has a conversation with some of his disciples after he's been resurrected. He finds them on the Emmaus Road, and they're trying to make sense of everything that's happened with Jesus, and he says this to them. He opened up their minds so that they could understand the scriptures, pay attention to that, and he told them, this is what is written. The Messiah will suffer and rise from the dead on the third day. 
and repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. So Jesus says scripture is about three things. Scripture is about three things. One, that Christ will suffer and die. Two, that Christ will be raised from the dead. And three, repentance and forgiveness of sins will be preached to all the nations. Pay attention to this. Jesus is saying the whole Bible, the thing that bears witness to everything God has been doing in the world since its beginning, since its creation, this thing bears witness to one plan. And the plan is that this guy, the Christ will come, will die and be raised so that we might be forgiven of sins. And that message will be preached to the nations. That's it. He says, everything that God wills is coming to its fulfillment in this, the preaching of the resurrected Christ for the forgiveness of sins to the nations. That's what it's all been about. So is it a surprise that the last thing that Jesus says to us before he leaves is, go and make disciples of all nations. This is the truth. Or we might say, this is the will of God. So let me end by saying this. You're going to give today. I'm so grateful for that. And I pray that that truth, that God does not show favorites, is taking root in your heart. And it's humbling you like it's humbled me this week. I pray that it's taking root. But let me just say, we don't send missionaries to the nations to be humbled. Okay? That's a blessing of it. It's the way God uses missions to bless us here and make us the kind of people he can use. The reason though we do missions is because it is the will of God. And when we do the will of God, then we are doing good. Then we're doing good. So today when you give, that's what you're doing it. And that's why you're doing it. Let me say a prayer over you as I dismiss you. God, I pray that you would work in each heart here. And I know what it's like to have worries and burdens and concerns and uh, things you're responsible for and uh, bills to pay and all that. And all that just comes flowing in, God, as we're leaving this place and heading back to what feels like real life. God, I pray that you enable us to see that you are our provider. And you have given us every blessing we enjoy. And yet you call us because we're not your favorites. You call us to be the vehicles and witnesses through whom you will reach the world. God, convict us with that truth. Make us humble and therefore generous for your sake and glory that your will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Name above all names. Amen.